Hello there and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. Today we are starting a brand new series in the book of Micah. It's three parts and today's teaching is part one and it is entitled Micah and the Angry Judgment of God. Let's begin our series in the book of Micah by reading from chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. We read, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of kings Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Listen, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For lo, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Then the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will burst open like wax near the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols I will lay waste. For as the wages of a prostitute, she gathered them. And as the wages of a prostitute, they shall again be used. For this I will lament and wail. I will go barefoot and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. When I read this passage, there is a primary question that forms in my mind. Why is God so angry? Most Christians I know do not like the picture of an angry God. In fact, most Christians I know prefer the more docile and peaceful and loving picture of God that's portrayed in the New Testament. And when we read in the Old Testament pictures of God where God is angry, well, Christians aren't sure what to do with that. Most Christians avoid those passages because an angry God makes them uncomfortable. Which raises another question. Why does an angry God make us uncomfortable? I think the answer to that question can be found in the dominant Christian narrative. Most Christians to this day tell a story that is something like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything on the earth, including animals and men and women. Now, men and women rebelled against God and introduced sin into this world, and God was angry with this sin. But God had a plan to eradicate sin from this existence. This plan required God to send God's only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for our sins. This death would somehow satisfy the wrath of God. And after the wrath had been satisfied, then God resurrected Jesus from the grave. Which brings us to today. Churches will tell you and me that we have a real choice to make because judgment is coming. And at the end of time, our sins will be laid bare before the founder of the universe 
and God will decide whether or not we are worthy to be saved. Now, according to the church, no human being can get into heaven on their own volition. So what Christians, what human beings must do is accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And when your turn comes up to be judged before the universe, God will not look at your life, but will look at the life of Jesus. And when God sees the blameless life of Jesus before God, then God will pardon you and you can go into eternal bliss in heaven forever. And if you do not, well, that's where a lot of denominations disagree about what happens next. In other words, the message of the Christian church is this. One day God will judge our sins and the Christian's mission is to end up in heaven and to avoid going toward death or hell. And when you look at that from the perspective of the church, God will judge our sins. So the church's mission then is to help people get to heaven and to discourage them from going toward death or hell. Now imagine being on trial and right before you enter the courtroom, someone comes out of the courtroom, looks at you and says, Whew, it's rough in there. That judge is angry. Well, that's not what you want to hear. You want to hear about how the judge was kind and empathetic and understanding and just, yes, but ultimately compassionate. And so when we hear about an angry God, whether it's in scripture or at church, we recoil because if God is angry, then this anger makes our life's work and goal much more difficult. We don't want an angry judge on the throne, right? And so this is why many Christians hold the book of Micah and other prophets at an arm's length. We don't like an angry God because it seems to make our life and our work much more difficult. And once we can understand that, we can start to address the first question once again, which is, why is God so angry? So let's attempt to answer that question. We need to go back 3,000 years to the 11th century BCE when a man named Saul is the first king to unite the 12 tribes of Israel and turn Israel into a nation. Saul does not reign for very long before he is killed in battle, and another man named David rises to the throne and violently overthrows Saul's household. David is considered to be Israel's greatest king, and it is under him and his son who succeeds him, a man named Solomon, that Israel goes into a golden age of unrivaled prosperity, wealth, and power. However, Solomon reigned with an iron fist. He was so obsessed with becoming richer and more powerful that he began to enslave his own people, and the people of Israel hated Solomon. They hated him so much that when he died, the leaders of the tribes of Israel went before his son, Rehoboam, who was to be king, and they pleaded with him to be a kinder and more gentler king. Rehoboam thought about their proposition, and after going away for a little bit, he came back and held out his little finger and looked at them and said these words, My little finger is bigger than my dad's genitals. As you can imagine, the tribal leaders were disappointed to hear this. They were so disappointed that they decided to secede from the union and they took 10 tribes to the north and formed a sovereign nation, the nation of Israel. And it was here they established a capital city in Samaria. 
Rehoboam stayed on the throne for the much smaller southern nation of Judah to the south. And it's here that we recognize that people died and there was a civil war that was fought. And these brothers, these cousins, went to war with each other all because a man wanted to brag about the size of his genitals. This brings us back to our overarching theme here at Paradox, which is, once again, the patriarchy is the problem. For the next 200 years, the descendants of David stay on the throne of Judah. Rehoboam's son, Abijah, takes the throne after him, and then Asa, and then Jehoshaphat, then Joram, then Ahaziah, Athaliah, Jehoash, Amaziah, Uzziah, Jotham, and then Ahaz. Now, during the reign of Ahaz, something significant happens in 722 BCE. A nation to the north rises in power, known as Assyria, with a king named Sennacherib on the throne. In that year, Sennacherib then launches an offensive on the northern nation of Israel and conquers them and wipes them out as a people. So Sennacherib and all of Assyria is on the doorstep of Judah, ready to wipe out all of the Jews when King Ahaz goes before Sennacherib and says, no, stop, we love Assyria. We're not like our northerly neighbors. We're very different. We like you guys. Sennacherib halts the army of Assyria and allows Judah to live as a subservient nation to the Assyrian Empire. Not only that, but Sennacherib allows David's descendants to continue on the throne. And so Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, takes the throne after him. And then that leads to a man named Manasseh. Now it's here that we can reread Micah chapter 1, verse 1. We read these words, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth. Now, Morasheth is a rural farming village to the southwest of Jerusalem. It's about a day's journey away. And we'll talk about Morasheth more in just a moment. But then Micah writes these words. In the days of kings Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah. Due to extra-biblical sources, we can date the work of Micah to a very specific time period. Those three reigns lasted from 760 to 685 BCE. But we can narrow even further when we read the next words of Micah, when he says, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Well, Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom, was leveled in 722 BCE. What that means is we can limit the first part of Micah's writing to be written sometime between 760 to 722 BCE. So when we read the book of Micah, we have to remember that we're reading stuff from the 8th century BCE about Micah's very real life experience. Not only that, but we have to remember who Micah was. Micah was not a king. And most times that we read history from all of humanity, it is written by the winners, the powerful, the rich. And so when I tell you we're going to read something from 760 to 722 BCE, people assume that we're reading something from either King Ahaz or King Hoshea of Israel or King Sennacherib from Assyria. But that's not who Micah is. Micah is a poor farmer from Morasheth, which is a tiny little farming village that doesn't even make it into the footnotes of most history books. So Micah sees Assyria rise to the north. He sees Israel crumbling. He sees Judah wandering around in circles. And he says to himself, you know what? I'm not a politician. 
I'm not a king, but I have some things I'd like to get off my chest. And so his writing is addressed to the capital cities of Israel and Judah. Micah's work is a very political work. Micah's writing is not partisan, but Micah's work is one that asks the politics of his day to change the way they operate. So with that in mind, we go back to the book of Micah, and while our original question is, why is God so angry, I'd like to modify it just a little bit. What is God, according to Micah, angry about? Now, over the next two chapters, Micah tells us why God is angry. And there's three reasons for this justified anger. I think it's worth sharing the three reasons why God is so angry. The first reason God is angry is found in Micah chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. We read, Alas for those who devise wickedness and evil deeds on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their power. They covet fields and seize them, houses and take them away. They oppress householder and house, people and their inheritance. The first reason God is angry is because there are greedy tycoons who see people living on poor land. They then buy up all of the land and evict those poor people and give them no place to go. Which brings us to the second reason God is angry, found in Micah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. We read, And I said, Listen, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin off my people and the flesh off their bones. It's here that Micah directs his writing toward those who are in charge of justice within the capital cities. These people are not primarily concerned with justice, but instead are concerned with what is evil, and they like what is evil more than what is good. The second reason that God is angry is because there are corrupt judges who are overseeing the legal system. And that brings us to the third reason God is angry, found in Micah chapter 3, verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against those who put nothing into their mouths. Micah focuses on religious leaders who have plenty to eat, and they are looking at people who are hungry who we assume are either rioting or going on strike because they are hungry. And these religious leaders, rather than finding ways to feed the hungry, stand up and demand that the hungry act in peace and ask them for patience and calm. According to Micah, God is angry because there are greedy tycoons, there are corrupt judges, and there is compromised religion which raises a bigger question. Are these three things worth getting angry about? Now, you may say yes, or you may say no, but I'm going to guess that your answer doesn't have a lot of passion in it. The reason for this minor level of passion is because these events happened 2,700 years ago on another side of the globe in a different culture. But what if these things were happening to us today? Because when I read the stories of the greedy tycoons and the corrupt judges and the compromised religion, I'm reminded of three different instances that happened not too long ago. So first, 
the greedy tycoons. A few weeks ago on his show last week tonight, John Oliver did an investigative report on mobile homes. In this report, he talked about how there are two ways to live in mobile homes. One is where you own the mobile home as well as the land that the mobile home rests on. And then two, where you own the mobile home, but someone else owns the land underneath the mobile home. Historically, the land underneath the mobile home has been owned by the mobile home owner. But recently, there have been people who have been snatching up land out from underneath the mobile homes and then raising the rent. One of these people is a man named Frank Rolfe. Now, Frank Rolfe, according to his own website, is the fifth largest mobile home landowner in the United States of America. And so what Frank Rolfe does is he finds mobile home parks where people own the mobile homes, but they don't own the land underneath. He then buys the land out from underneath them and then raises the rent. He talks about that process through his Mobile Home University online courses, as well as his DVD set. In his DVD set, released in 2014, he says these words about what it takes to do that to other people. He says, what I found, and again, just as a heartless person, is that, you know, the customers are stuck there. They don't have any option. They can't afford to move their trailer home. They don't have three grand to do that. So the only way they can, they can object to your rent raise is to walk off and leave the trailer home, in which case it becomes abandoned property and you recycle it, put another person in it. So you really hold all the cards. So the question is, what do you want to do? How high do you want their rent to go? Around the same time that that DVD series was released to the public, Frank Rolfe gave an interview with Bloomberg Magazine. In that interview, he said these words, owning the land of a trailer park is like owning a Waffle House where the customers are chained to the booths. Now, he later clarified those words by saying he was speaking about consistent revenue. He was not speaking about freedom of choice. But when I hear it, it still makes my skin crawl. And if Micah was here with us today, I believe he would look at Frank Rolfe in the same way he looked at the greedy tycoons of his day, and he would say that God is angry with this horrible greed of these trailer park land tycoons. Which brings us to the second reason God is angry. God is angry with corrupt judges. For this, I'd like to take us to the state of Pennsylvania and tell you the story of Hillary Transu, who was 14 years old in the year 2006. As a 14-year-old, Hillary Transu did something stupid. This is not remarkable because I did a lot of stupid things when I was 14 as well. But what Hillary did was she created a fake MySpace page, making fun of and attacking her assistant principal at her school. Because of some of the recklessness of her comments, the authorities got involved and required Hillary Transu to show up in court at the Luzerne County Courthouse in Pennsylvania. Now, Hillary's mother is a social worker. She had seen dozens of cases like this before. Her mother assumed that she would walk into the courtroom, go before the judge and say, I'm so sorry, I did this, I should not have done it. The judge would then give her a stern lecture and order her to some hours of community service. But what happened next stunned Hillary Transu as well as her mother. The judge was a man named Mark Ciavarella. And he heard Hillary's case for 60 seconds and then pronounced judgment that she was to serve serious time 
in a detention hall for juveniles. Hillary Transu was sent to jail for a MySpace page mocking her assistant principal. Now this puzzled Hillary Transu's mom, but it wasn't just Hillary Transu's mom. There were other mothers and fathers who were complaining about the same thing. According to NPR, from 1999 to 2009, children in Luzerne County were 10 times more likely to be sent to juvenile detention facilities than in other counties in Pennsylvania. After some investigation, people discovered that that judge, Mark Sieverella, had received over $1 million in bribes from the builder of a for-profit juvenile detention center. And so the judge, Mark Sieverella, was sending kids to jail to line his own pockets. Judge Sieverella was tried, convicted, and sentenced to 28 years in prison, which didn't feel like it was nearly enough. And shortly thereafter, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court threw out 4,000 convictions of kids made by Sieverella between 2003 and 2008. 4,000 kids for a million dollars. Now, if Micah was alive with us today, I don't believe that Micah would sit idly by. I think that he would stand up and call out this injustice and say that God is angry with this abuse of power. Which brings us to the third reason that God is angry. The corrupt religion, where religious leaders were looking at hungry people and crying peace while they were eating enough for them and their family. Now, this story that Micah cites here is very personal to me because in 2015, something very similar happened while I was working for a Christian denomination. So in 2015, the denomination I was working for was trying to decide whether or not female pastors could be ordained the same as male pastors here in the United States of America. Now, to set the scene of what this vote looked like, you have to understand that the denomination I was working for was 57% female across the globe. Men were in a significant minority in this denomination. Now, the way a vote like this takes place is that regions from across the globe uh, vote for and elect representatives called delegates to go to a centralized meeting and represent them in votes. And so while the church is 57% female, it sends 2,500 different delegates from across the globe. And of those 2,500 delegates, only 17% were female. Now you may ask, how can a church that is 57% female only have 17% female representation when major decisions are being made about women? And the answer is, of course, well, the patriarchy is the problem. So my friends and I watched this vote come in and it was devastating. I mean, to watch the church I was working for just openly declare that they were going to discriminate against women was awful. And one of the world leaders after this vote came in stood up and he was very vocally and famously opposed to women's ordination. And as soon as this vote came in, he looked at all of the church and he said, now is the time, and I'm very serious about this, now is the time to unify in the mission of God's church. As we move forward in unity, I appeal to your hearts for calmness and peace. Now, it's here that I'd like to ask you a question. What would happen if Micah was part of this Christian denomination and he was sitting in that room where that vote happened? Do you think he'd be filled with calm? 
do you think he'd be peaceful? Because I have this sense that Micah would stand up and very loudly and boldly proclaim, God is angry with these religious men in power. So when you look at these three stories about greedy tycoons and corrupt judges and compromised religion, I ask you that question again. Are these things worth getting angry about? I think the answer is yes, absolutely yes. These things are worth getting angry about. And after Micah confronts these three injustices head on, he wraps up the summary of God's judgment. He writes, hear this, you rulers of the house of Jacob and chiefs of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with wrong. Its rulers give judgments for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets gives oracles for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, surely the Lord is with us. No harm shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. I read the summary of judgment and I have to say, wait, wait, wait a second, Micah. Does God bring about the destruction of Jerusalem? Or do the corrupt people of Jerusalem bring about their own destruction? And if I could ask Micah this question, I believe that Micah would respond by saying, yes, it's the same thing. Micah believed that the actions and consequences of humanity was also interpreted as the judgment of God. And it's here that we have to talk about a very important idea. Christians often say that people are punished for their sins. That's not the way that Micah saw it. Micah instead saw the world in a way that you are punished by your sins. And when you have corrupt judges that are allowed to run and rule freely without any consequences, it will inevitably lead to your destruction. When you have greedy tycoons who are able in a capitalist economy to continue to buy and displace the poor away from their homes, Micah would say that will lead to our soul being removed from our country. When you look at a compromised religion that is more concerned with its self-preservation, title, power, and money than it is with helping people who are hungry or who are being discriminated against, Micah would say that religion will not be around for long. Micah is not concerned with saying what is comfortable Micah is concerned with saying what needs to be said. And when we talk about prophets, people often understand prophets as someone who predicts the future. I think that's a very poor understanding of what a biblical prophet is. The best definition I can give you for a prophet is someone who calls our attention to pain we prefer to ignore and asks us to do something about that pain. And so Micah, 2,700 years ago, confronts corrupt systems of power, calls them out, says they are immoral. And 2,700 years later, in America today, in the language of English, we can't help but agree with him, can we? This is tremendous foresight. Think about if someone asked you to write about three big problems that you see unfolding around you. And then 2,700 years later, there's people in another language on another planet reading your writing 
And they all say, yeah, that girl writing 2,700 years ago knew exactly what was moral and immoral. (laughs) That's what's happening with Micah here. He calls out things that we hear and we say, oh yeah, those are, those are worth getting angry about. And when we ask the question, why is God so angry? Well, it's because there's greedy tycoons and corrupt judges and compromised religion. And God, according to Micah, is angry because God loves the poor and the powerless. God loves the people who are being displaced by capitalism. God loves the people who are being sent to jail by judges who are accepting bribes from that jail. God loves female pastors who the patriarchy would prefer to remain silent. And a big idea behind the Christian narrative is that one day God will judge our sins. My brothers and sisters, I'd like for you to change that mindset because I believe that God is judging our sins. And while that may sound daunting or frightening, may I offer you some good news. God always judges in favor of the poor and the powerless and the dispirited and the uncertain and the weak. This is the gospel. And when you look closely at the life of Jesus, Jesus never gets mad at sinners. He only gets mad at people who believe they are above sin. Why is God so angry? It's because God loves the poor and the powerless. Which brings us to the closing thought about the church's mission and a Christian's mission. At the beginning of this podcast, we talked about how the church believes its own mission is to help people get to heaven and to also discourage them from going to hell or toward death. I will tell you that there is a serious problem with this understanding of mission. This problem was revealed when that leader got up to speak after women were told they could not be ordained the same as men. That leader said these words, now is the time, and I'm very serious about this, now is the time to unify in the mission of God's church. To which we must ask the question, why isn't the mission of the church to end the sexism? Wouldn't Micah say, this is the mission, to end sexism, to put an end to greedy tycoons, to make sure that judges are held accountable, and to feed people who are hungry? Wouldn't Micah say, this is the mission? Instead, a church leader stood up and said, this whole women's ordination thing has been a distraction from our actual mission to help people go to heaven. And it's here that I remember watching all this unfold and thinking to myself, oh, salvation has compromised a church's ability to love. We have this idea that one day God will judge our sins and the church's mission is to help people to get into heaven. But my brothers and sisters, we must remember that eternal salvation Conversion and self-preservation must always take a back seat to the real mission of the church, to love with great abandon. Now, I personally believe in heaven being a real place and that one day I will be reunited with those who have died that I love.
However, something that must be said to anyone who believes in eternal life or heaven is that there is a dark side to that belief. And that dark side is this. Salvation can compromise our ability to love. I've seen it not only in the way that the church handles sexism, but also racism and homophobia, and even helping to feed those who are hungry. And when I read Micah and what Micah is genuinely concerned with, I read about him hearing people saying, we're the nation of God, God loves us, we're God's chosen people. And he writes his words to those who believe that they are God's chosen people and those who are in power. And he asks them a bold question. He asks them, who cares if we are religious? If our society allows greedy land barons to displace the poor, then God is against us. And if Micah was writing to Christians in America today, I would think that he would hear them saying, well, I've got to be saved. I've got to make sure I'm right with God. I've got to ask forgiveness for my sins so we can lead people to heaven. I think Micah would burst onto the scene and say, who cares if we are saved? If we turn a blind eye to suffering, then we turn a blind eye to God. My brothers and sisters, the mission of the church is to love with great abandon. May we have the eyes to see and the arms to embrace those who are being tread over by a system. And may we have the voice to speak out when we have been tread over by a system. May we have the courage to speak out against greedy land tycoons, against corrupt judges, and against compromised religion. And may we have the courage to see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.